Welcome to Poetry Lectures, featuring talks by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, Burmese poet Zayar Lin and English poet and translator James Byrne speak with the director of the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute, Ilya Kaminsky. Zayar Lin is a poet, critic, translator, and teacher who lives in Rangoon, Burma, now officially known as Myanmar. He was born in 1959 and is one of the most influential living poets in Burma. He is also active as a translator, bringing the work of many modern poets to Burma for the first time. Poet James Byrne was born in England in 1977. He is editor of The Wolf magazine and is co-editor and translator of Bones Will Crow, the first collection of contemporary Burmese poetry available in the West. Poetry in Burma is a thousand-year-old tradition that has recently undergone rapid and extreme changes, often due to the shifting political climate. In the 1950s, the Marxist government promoted poetry for the people. When the military took control in 1962, the government clamped down on all aspects of life. For the next 50 years, all literature was subject to censorship. Even the use of common words and phrases was forbidden. Now, with the relaxation of censorship and access to the Internet, Burmese poets are experimenting with a broad range of new styles. This conversation took place at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago in May 2013. Zayar Lin gives a quick overview of poetry in Burma, followed by James Byrne describing some of his considerations in selecting the poems for the anthology Bones Will Crow. Uh, We have a long history of poetry in our culture. Going back to 1146 or the 12th century, during the first Burmese kingdom, then in the 20th century, there were profound changes, especially in the 1930s and the 30s, when two great poets from uh, Myanmar started this literary movement called Kissin, or Testing the Times, or Experimenting. They broke away with those centuries of uh, classical poetry, and they came up with a very simple form. It's called a four-syllable rhymed form. And that is still considered the traditional poetic form in our country. And uh, it is also the, the form of poetry, Burmese poetry, that is considered real Burmese poetry by the government. Then in the 50s, there was a new movement called Sabirde, or new writing or new literature. The difference between the earlier movement and the second movement was that in the second movement, poetry became very politicized. It was a leftist Marxist view of poetry. And these new slogans appeared like poetry for the people, poetry for the masses, art for people's sake. And that movement went on till the 80s when the third important movement arose, which is the modernist poetry, Kippo Gabya, or modern poetry. And that third movement is still the mainstream now. And I suppose we are now witnessing a new movement, which I would call it the contemporary movement, which includes all the um, different types of, different forms of poetry, including um, language-oriented poetry, conceptual poetry, digital poetry, fluff poetry, hybrid poetry, So today, we are seeing a diversity of poetic forms emerging, which uh, had never been seen in the whole of last century. So I belong to that, uh, the latest contemporary movement, and I have also been influential in in leading this, this new contemporary movement. 
Isaiah Lim was just talking about uh, the movement towards uh, contemporary poetics and the diversity within that. Now, in editing Bones Will Crow, we had a very difficult decision initially, just thinking about trying to unravel the strands between um, whether we chose to include poets who wrote in, in Kitsan or Kitpaw. Kitpaw is modern poetry. Um, or to em, um, embrace and try and cover as wide a canvas as possible in including poets who write in these um, uh, strands from language, poetry, to fluff, or whether to, you know, how far do we go back? So we left out um, major Burmese poets from the 1950s, 60s, 70s, including the likes of Dagontea, who is considered to be, um, well, he's a living legend, really. I think he's almost 100 years old now. And we left out Mintuwin, who is another legendary Burmese poet. So our focus was predominantly on uh, poets who were born after the Second World War. And the anthology, in fact, ends with poets, well, uh, younger than myself. For example, the final poet in the book was born in 1981 and is Mong Yu Pai. And he uh, exemplifies, I believe, what Zeilin is talking about with regard to the diversity of poetic styles which currently exist in Burma today. It's a luxurious position to be in as an editor to look at Burmese poetry because it is, has always been the most important form of literature in the country and always been the most censored form of literature in the country. So again, there were various challenges in looking at poetry of pre-censorship and different arenas of censorship as well in the history of a country that essentially had been silenced from the rest of the world for 50 years. I want to follow up a little bit on this question of censorship, uh, because uh, in the West, say, in Eastern Europe, Cheslav Milosh uh, wrote a famous book called The Witness of Poetry, and in North America, contemporary poet Karen Porsche edited an influential anthology called Poetry of Witness. So I want to follow up on this question of censorship and poets' role as a witness. What is in Burma? in your opinion, the poets were the witness, and how does it enter your own work? Before this lessening up of um, censorship, there weren't any poetry of witness per se because the censorship was so severe that poets could not write anything about what's going on in the country at that time. So what poets had to do, especially during the Kippo or the modern period, was they had to internalize what they wanted to say, and write in the form of a lyric, um, eye-based, using imagery, then writing in a linear form, and ending in that epiphanic uh, line. So I would say all of the, almost all of the Kippo po poems were in that vein, very expressive. So what they were expressing was their own feelings, and those feelings were understood to represent the feelings of the people. So there weren't any direct representation of what was happening in the country or what the government was doing in the poems. So instead of saying that the country, at one time it was considered least developed country, we were not able to talk about poverty. So what poets did was they talked about how poor they were about their family, how they could not afford to buy rice or, or shoes or things like that. So in that way, there wasn't that kind of um, poetry of witness that uh, Chester Milos said, or even the kind of poetry that other people wrote in East Europe. 
But now, after this abolishment of uh, censorship, we are finding this emergence of what you call this poetry of witness. Because poets are now writing directly about things happening in the country, um, the economic failures, the, the way the ex-military government sold huge plots of uh, land containing natural resources to China. And um, the latest uh, subject that is being written by a lot of poets is the sectarian violence. So we are seeing this poetry of witness only after abolishment of this um, censorship. Very interesting. James, would you like to follow up on that at all? Well, I'd just like to make the point, I suppose, um, to echo what Zaylin is saying here. It's really the beginnings of post-censorship literature in Burma. Um, we're only talking about a decision that was made some nine months ago. So uh, it'd be interesting to see uh, how direct the, the poetry uh, might become. Uh, what are the consequences of this? For example, in editing Bones Will Crow, uh, the poets of Zaylin's generation and the younger generation had to be so inventive to avoid uh, censorship. And uh, that inventiveness is something which I've consistently admired about the poetics. You know, this is a country where you couldn't use the word red in a poem. When uh, General Ni Win was in power, you couldn't talk about the setting of the sun in a poem because his name related to uh, the, set, the, the sunset. So, yeah, I, I think now that with these... Essentially, we're talking about less fear and more freedom and what the consequences of that might be for the, the poetry of Burma. Well, I want to stop for a moment to focus a little more on the language of poetry itself. How has the language changed when a poet tried to confront censorship? You speak about inventiveness. Could you give us more examples on the page, like maybe with a poem? Uh, yes. One way try to go past the censorship was to use images. And then another way was to, to avoid using words like red or poverty or um, suffering. And instead of that, some of us use irony, writing in a way as if we were living in a very rich land and we were filthy rich and enjoying ourselves. Mm -hmm. One way I used in my poetry, which I'm going to read out soon, is... Um, making the persona dead. So it's like a dead man speaking. So um, when they, that was in 2005, when the censorship read this, they passed it because, you know, I, I think they felt that, you know, the words of a dead man don't have any weight or any bearing. So luckily that Pope um, passed the censorship. So I'd like to read that in Burmese first. Ngatamaiha, ngatamaimhopu. Ngati biluda, dago nga makwe mahwep yo yere. Ngata maingu yigera, ngam hopu. Luce yang ma setayao, ngago matibu. Turo yigere, ngata maingu, turo matibu. Amatea yang sazia, ngama bahama mashibu. Champu zuzia, matantinzia, turo yigeja maba. Tabime, ngama mamibu. Chang sarai mashibu. อุกุมชีบูอยู่มชีบูปิยาตองมชีบูงาตะมายงงายีเกระมหุปูตรุยีเกระตรุปิญญาชินตุยตรุยีเกระตรุอมันเตยาตุยตรุยีเกระชวย
ตีจินลูตีจินตองมาสิมันเกยาบูตีจินมาเลงาหานิเนคันยาเปียนเดงาหมาปะยาเสียสายเวสาดันอถอถอดวีตรุปีปิสงสงมะยีเกจาเปีย
is a form of activism and translation is a form of activism, not necessarily from the sense of um, waving one's fist in the air or starting rallies, but I think poetry is active for me. It's always been an active process. And translation, uh, there's a nice phrase of um, a Burmese poet, Kin Ang A, who says that translation for him was like climbing the top of a tree to get at the fruit. And I think that um, myself as a poet living in England, uh, it's hard to find those trees. I'm lucky I rely on uh, finding poetics uh, from various countries around the world. Examples of that are really through contributing in festivals. For example, I was sent to Syria in 2009 by the British Council. It widened my reading exponentially. I was sent to um, Libya around this time last year. Again, I, I suddenly had a new direction for my thinking as a poet, as a human being. And of course, I've been to Burma now um, and, and been researching the literature for the last six years this book took to make. So um, these kind of things help feed the addiction of being a poet, I suppose, for which there is no cure. So one must become more and more addicted? Well, poetry has always been a part of social activism, political activism in our country. Starting from the very beginning of the 20th century, we had this poet called the King Kod of Mai, who was very political in his poems, very political. And later, during the, the first movement of Kissin, that political substance was, you know, it was lost in a way because at that time, the Kisan poets were studying under, uh, they were studying in Yangon University, which was still under the um, British colony at that time. And especially since um, these two famous poets, Mintu and, and, Mintu and Seazoji, they were um, educated in Cambridge University. So, you know, they came back with, not with... Um, pro-British colonial attitude, but it was the, the nationalistic attitude was a bit watered down. So during the second movement, during this new writing movement started by the Gongdaya, what the Gongdaya did was he brought in this ideology, this Marxist ideology into Myanmar poetry world. So what the king Kodomai was doing was more nationalistic poetry, you know, sometimes harking back to the old Burmese kings, kingdoms, but what the Gondaya did was to imbue poetry with an ideology. So up to now, any self-respecting Burmese poet would say that poetry is activism. What happens after censorship is lessened? What happens to the language of the tradition? In terms of language, we are seeing new words coming into the language, especially um, words that are related to technology. So um, in one sense... Contemporary poems contain these words that come from technology, which were never used in the previous times, well, naturally, because they didn't have the technology. So in, um, in these current poems, you can find words like Google, mouse, website, Facebook, DNA, and things like that. So in that way, our newer poetry, this contemporary poetry, will show the kind of new usages that were never found in, in the earlier times, not even 20 years ago. 
So in that sense, the language used in poetry has changed. And another, another way is that of uh, the use of found language. Now, a lot of poets are using um, language from newspapers, language from advertisements, language from magazines, news reports, even from poetic texts. So at one time, these were considered unpoetic. Now, the younger poets have the freedom to make use of any found language in their poems and create a new texture. In my own work, I have also used uh, found language. And at one time, I used the headings of news reports in a newspaper. And I collaged them into a poem. And I called it, Many, many eyes and newspaperies or journalists. And one very famous poet, Kippo poet, Aung Cheng, whom I respect very much, he said, he asked me if that was poetry. And I said, why not? And he said, how can you create poetry with language from newspapers? And I said, why can't I create poetry from language or newspapers or from, from other registers? So um, that was um, in about 10 years' time. But now, the younger generation has followed my lead, and they know that there is no such thing as poetic language. No part of language can be restricted. Any part of language, any, any discourse, any register can be used to make poems, poetry. Um, I just wanted to ask, does that create a kind of turbulence? Because there's some, obviously many poets would want a more traditional approach than that. Uh, and the other thing I suppose I was just going to ask you, say, that we're also talking here about online poetry as well as a process. There are many poets in Bones Will Crow that we simply would not have found under the censorship laws of a few years ago, which was when we were doing the research, unless we looked at their blogs, unless we looked at... Um, how they were trying to create a new kind of poetics through publishing online. Um, before we go to online poetry, I'd like to give some examples of what I was saying just now of using found language. This comes from my poem, Slideshow, which is uh, included in Bones the Crow. This poem is made of um, fragments, and um, I'll read out some of the fragments that were considered unpoetic, which should not be used in poetry. For example, Maria Xiao, Channel News Asia, Beijing. That is not, in the past, people would say that that is not poetic. It has, it's not an image or anything. It's just a line taken from an anchor woman from Channel News Asia. But I deliberately took it and I used it in this poem to show that there is something bigger than us. There's a world out there. And anchor men, anchor women in the world are giving news and giving their names in it. So that's one thing. Another example is loathing plus fear plus fear and loathing. Now, this uh, medical symbol of addition, this plus, had never been used in Burmese poetry before. So um, bringing in minus, plus, equal, these things have um, changed this this um, surface of the of Burmese poetry now. And um, another one is bringing in lyrics into poems. For example, there's a, this song, Yellow Submarine, by the 
by the Beatles. So I got two lines there. We all live in a yellow submarine, yellow submarine, yellow submarine. Next slide. So the surface form or the texture of um, Burmese contemporary poems have become, in one way, they've become very fragmented. And um, uh, the use of this found language, the use of ordinary language, the use of language that was considered unpoetic in the past have now all come into poems and, you know, being juxtaposed with um, poetic lines, non-poetic lines, words from advertisements, things like that. This makes me think of Nicanor Parra, a great poet of Chile who wrote during the Pinochet regime, and he called his poetry anti-poetry. So there are these similarities in different parts of the world, in different poetics, yeah. You have the same phrase uh, banded around in Burma. There's um, uh, the idea of an anti-poetry as well. I think it's, I won't name names, but uh, it's always interesting, isn't it, this um, idea of recovery, uh, trying to recover a, a national literature at times of great change. Yes, talking about anti-poetry in Burma, sorry, in Myanmar, anti-poetry can be considered outlaw poetry by those mainstream poets um, who are acknowledged poets, respected poets in their way. And so when these new forms of poems appeared, they would dismiss them as not poetry, anti-poetry, against poetry. But then those of us who deliberately wrote these new forms, we enjoyed being called anti-poetry, which means we were not them. So it was like a, a badge of honor for us because we were doing something alternative to mainstream. Very interesting. James, in your opinion, where is this transition headed? Well, I'm still learning uh, the possibilities, the permutations of attempting to answer this question. But one possibility is that there's a group of poets called the post-88 generation. Of course, 88 was a horrific year in the history of uh, of, of Burma. And, and the post-88 generation are doing ostensibly what Zaylin is talking about, making use of a lot of found uh, language, found information. The poetry is much more direct in some senses. It makes use of anaphora uh, more and more. The, the interesting thing I'd say about it, in perhaps contrast to that, is that the post-88 generation, and here I'm thinking of uh, some very fine poets, actually. Uh, for example, Han Lin, who's in his early 20s, they are not so concerned with reading the great old masters. So post-88 is the defining line, and they're ostensibly going to read one another. And I do think there is an inherent danger in that. You know, it's it's all fine and well for me to say this as a, really someone who is essentially a tourist of, of Burmese literature, but I do think whichever country you're in, not reading the great masters is problematic. Yes, you're right. Um one strand of this post-88 generation is um, what we call documentary writing, when um, poets are writing about things happening in the country in a very direct way, almost like in a journalistic way, except that it's in a form of written in lines. So if you, if you consider lines as the basic unit of poetry, we can call it poetry. But then if you, you know, uh, instead of Breaking, bringing it down into lines, if we write it in prose form, it becomes prose again. So um, in a way, when we're talking about form, I think it's a loss because um, it becomes more prosaic and losing the poetic qualities. But that's one strand that's happening now. Another strand is 
parodying the older canonical texts and, you know, using inter intertextual strategies. That belongs to this uh, group of um, poets who call themselves Pem School. They are very much under the influence of Laugh, of Gary Snyder, uh, Nada Gordon, uh, Sharon Mesmer, and people like that. So what they do is they parody the famous poems of the past. Now, for example, Aung Ching wrote this classical modern poem called Gandawin Mama, which means classical lady. So what these Pem School, uh, School poets did was they came up with a book called La La Ji. In Burmese, La La Ji means big and beautiful lady, which sort of um, alludes to Aung Ching's classical lady. But then in the poems of these uh, Pem School poets, you know, um, you find a lot of um, lines in earlier canonical poems playing about with those lines or juxtaposing those great lines with some stupid, funny uh, lines. So that's one thing. Another strand, the latest strand that I noticed about uh, three, four months ago, is the ludic, the playful strand. You know, these young poets who are of the same age as the Pem School poets, they came out with a book called To Lan Chao. In English, it means revolutionary cats. On the cover of the book, which was in red, was this picture of a cat, which looked very similar like Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao Zedong of China. So instead of Chairman Mao, there was this picture of a cat, and they named it Chairman Meow. And they called themselves the Meowists. So, and in the, in the book, too, the poems are very playful, you know, playing with language, which, um, which a lot of um, older poets did not like at all because they, they feel that these Meowists are destroying poetry, the seriousness of poetry. They, they are degrading the value of poetry. So that's what we are seeing now. One, one, one strand of uh, this, I would call them um, post ADA generation or contemporary poetry, that ludic aspect, and I like it too. There's just one thing I'd add as a caveat to that, is that um, at the same time, you have many fine poets of uh, uh, Zaya Lin's generation and others who are also still very interested in recovering or reclaiming or re-emphasizing, if you like, Burmese poems that have now become out of print. So, for example... I have to mention it today uh, as we're at the Poetry Foundation, but you have the Burmese Poetry Foundation who were inspired by the Poetry Foundation. Surprise, surprise. And they, um, it's run ostensibly by Kin Ong A, and he uh, really makes sure that he is republishing texts which people have no access to anymore. So I think that the, it's fascinating that you have this binary process happening simultaneously. We are trying to bring these... Um younger poets to tradition of Myanmar poetry, especially uh, modern poetry. But a lot of uh, these younger poets feel that they don't have to look back to the past, that they can just move on. I think um, at one stage, they will realize that, you know, when their battery goes down, they will realize that they will have to go back to the past and to, find, to go back to their roots and find out where they came from. See, so right now what has happened is with the translations of um, language poetry, uh, New York uh, school of poetry, post-Soviet poetry, FLAF, they have seen that translations of these different kinds of uh, poetry have done away with, with the kind of poetry in the past. And they have the license to move on, to go any direction they want. But then I feel that one day they will have 
they will have to look back and see where they came from. If not, there will be a dead end. Do you mind if I just read a short poem, uh, oh, which which gives you an idea? Uh, it's the final poem in Bones Will Crow. Gives you a sense of a poet who does look back to the past and is perhaps, um, I'm speculating, but perhaps doing this in order to continue to be modern. This is a poem by Meng Yu Pai, born in 1981. Under the great ice sheet. Under the great ice sheet. A great country has been buried alive. Under the great country, a great church where God no longer shelters. Under the great church, great wars welded together six feet under. Under the great wars, a great museum of culture, dilapidated and yellowing. Under the great museum, banknotes without currency. Under the banknotes. Slaves with protruding bones and sunken eyes. Under the slavery, a stone age cave sealed by stones. Under the stone age, regressive evolution. Under the evolution, the ocean, the mother of Mother Earth, who died in labor. Under the ocean, a great ice sheet, unanticipated. Under the great ice sheet, dot dot dot. Meng Yupai is now writing poems very different to this,、um, going back to issues of、uh, post-censorship. But this is a very pivotal marking point, I believe, in his own writing and also the history of, of、um, modern Burmese poetry. Yes,、um, throughout the past fifty years or so, what we have seen in Myanmar poetry is pushing boundaries and、um, opening up the. World of poetry to new dimensions, and that was what、um, the new literature movement did. The Sabit did. Then that was again what Kipo or modern poetry did. It pushed the boundaries of poetry into new, new, new areas, into new fields. It's the same thing is happening now in this contemporary poetry.、Um, poets, including myself and others, we are not. Happy to stay within the confines of this kipper or modern poetry anymore. We want to push the boundaries open, open up poetry into postmodern or contemporary world. And、um, what we poets have always done was to search for new ways of writing poetry, to search and to discover and to make our own poems based on our discoveries. And、um, that was how. Translation has become a very important issue, because if we look at the models of、uh, Kipper poetry, what we were doing at that time was we were just reproducing the same models again and again and again, and we were quite fed up with that. But at the same time, we didn't know where and how to find new models because we had no access to the world at that time during the.、Uh, Um, the late eighties, early nineties, no, no internet,、um, no book, no books, no resources. But、uh, luckily, whatever we could find, were spread among、uh, fellow poets. And I did a lot of translating, and through those translations, poets began to see that Kipper poetry is not the be all and end all of poetry. That there's this whole new world of poetry out there, and so. 
some of the poets, sensing this, this newness, came to borrow or came to make use of these new formal ways of making poetry. And these new formal ways, of course, came a lot from um, New York School, from Ashbury, uh, the, especially the indeterminacy in his poems. That was uh, something that a lot of poets liked very much. And um, from language poetry, they learned about these disjunctive strategies, about parataxis, about uh, fragments of found language being collage. And one, another one was this, what I call this list or catalog poem, in which, you know, you have a list of lines that are not related to any other line, but each line containing one word that is repeated again in every line. And um, I've used that technique or that list, cat list form or catalog form in one of the poems here in Bones and the Crow. May I read that? Um, I'll read that in Burmese first. It's called Moksei Toi Tohaya Lamia. And the only cohesive device in all of these lines is the word Moksei. Moksei Toi Tohaya Lamia. มักเสียมุสิเทมากบะกายะเมมยาซีลงจะตะชองบาเรสาดกะมุสิมะทาดาหาผิดติมุปะดานะอวาดะอสะเตเปิ่นเลเปิ่นเลสิเตมอตะท
finishing and reading one more poem from the anthology just to give the listeners a little more of a scope of the book and uh, what you think put me further can teach you as audience. Right, so something that also talks back to anaphora as well. I'd like to read a poem by Indra. And um, before I read it, I'll just say one thing because we haven't touched on this. Uh, women, I've generally been treated as second-class citizens in, in a country like Burma for a long time, and it still continues. And educational reform, I think, is really needed in the country. Um, and also just attitudes towards women. So I think Andra is speaking back to this by using persona um, and inventing a character called Lily. Lily flutters her dark, wavy eyelashes from her long, ivy hair, from her cheeks, from her neck. A bunch of rainbows bloom in the middle of the night. Her thin top, curvy and bent, her mini-jeans torn and tight. Lily serves beer. Lily cringes more than necessary. Lily comes close more than necessary. Lily mixes herself appositely. Lily has her own recipe, cultures her own yeast. Lily cooks the pose of a she-cat in a pencil heel for an appetizer. Lily walks the glass bead strings on her pearly breasts into munchies. Lily's black irises are like a virgin crow stalking its prey. Lily moves like meatloaf about to be snatched by a hawk. Lily serves beer. Lily promotes beer with her scent. Lily promotes her scent with beer. Lily serves beer. Amid the buzzings of rowdy blowflies, lusty looks fume as Lily uncorks the syrupy sweet laughter. Pop! Lily pours her froth of giggles to be forked at, gummed and swallowed. With cloudberry lips, Lily serves. Lily's nonchalant smile pierces their stares. Lily serves. Lily knifes words with her gabble. Lily serves. Lily wants to flow in their arteries. Lily serves. Lily serves like a shaggy she-terrier cajoling. Lily smashes herself to fit into a bottle for her masters. Lily serves. Lily her face, uninterested at the news of homecomings, transplants her life branch to branch to serve another beer. Lily the bait, Lily the cheery fisherwoman who chaffs. Life is bitter, life is beer. Lily serves another beer. I am God's glitch, she serves. I am a tiny she-snake from the wicker basket of the snake charmer, she serves. Because it is not bedtime yet, another. Because, on Lily, the nights pour down, another. Dawn unbudded, where the darkness lingers, where the day is yet to shed new light, Lily serves beer. Lily has just served. Lily is serving. That was James Byrne reading a poem titled Lily by Aindra which appears in the anthology Bones Will Crow. Byrne and Zayar Lin were speaking with Ilya Kaminsky. This program was recorded at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago on May 8, 2013, 
as part of International Poets in Conversation and was sponsored by the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute. Zayar Lin's poetry collections include Distinguishing Features, Real-Life Prose Poems, and Kilimanjaro. He has also translated into Burmese numerous American and European poets. James Byrne is co-editor and translator of Bones Will Crow, 15 Contemporary Burmese Poets, which includes poems by Zayar Lin. The anthology was published in 2012. Byrne's own poetry collections include Passage of Time and Blood Sugar. Keep up with the world of poetry by visiting poetryfoundation.org, where you'll find articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Harriet blog about poetry, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.